0: You are listening to Episode 4 of Ravenwood, a Tanith Fairport Adventure, written and read by Nathan Lowell. Chapter 6. Decisions. The short night, followed by a long and stressful day, put Tanith in a mood to find her bedroll. A bellyful of rich, warm food and the snug security of the cozy hut added to her body's demand for rest. She checked the fire and banked what few coals there were against the back of the hearth adding another smallish log to maintain the fire overnight. In her last moments of awareness, she rummaged in her pack for her meager supply of oatmeal and her tiny cooking pot. She added some water from the bucket and settled it on the hearth where it could cook slowly while she slept. Her bedroll called her then, and she sank into slumber even as her body sank into the luxurious sweetgrass tick. Her dreams that night were shapeless, but haunted by the image of a great tree its leaves flowing smoothly from lush green to brilliant scarlet that faded to a glossy, wet color of blood. They dripped from the branches to pool on the ground and soak into the soil, but even as leaves were falling, those remaining in the tree turned to brown and cascaded more and more rapidly, piling up in a drift to protect the roots and no longer melting into the soil. As more and more leaves fell, the starkly forking branches became exposed First in small glimpses, and then in larger and larger areas. Finally the tree stood exposed, and with it a small bird perched near the ball, protected from the elements by the very body of the tree itself. As the last of the leaves fell from the tips of the branches, snow began to fall. It touched the branches, highlighting them in black and white against the gray winter sky, even while it covered the ground, laying a blanket of glistening white over the brown cloak. As the snow fell, the bird shook out its wings and stood revealed as a small owl with bands of black and brown across its wing and ruddy orange feathers forming rings around its brilliant onyx eyes. As the night wore on, so did the procession of seasons in her dream, until the snow gave way to stripes of warming sun and gentle rains that washed the snowy blanket away to expose tender grass, even as the stark black branches grew fuzzy tips. The owl returned to face her in the dream and hooted, a drawn out, Hoo, 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 while somewhere a rooster crowed. The last long hoo blended into a raucous cock-a-doodle-doo in her ears. It pulled her out of the dream and back to reality. She lay there in her bedroll, momentarily disoriented by the roof over her head, even as she lay warmly swathed in the bedroll she associated with an open sky. As disorientation faded and memory returned, the image of black limbs against gray skies faded in her mind and the sound of an owl's low call echoed in her ears. She sighed, blinked herself fully awake, and forced her body out of the warm cocoon of blankets. The fire demanded her attention first as the chill morning air scrubbed at her bed-warmed body. She found a few small spikes of cattail to put on the coals and blew life back into the nearly dead fire, adding a few small sticks to fuel the blaze. She weighed the luxury of using the ceramic pot beneath the bed against the more practical notion of slipping on her boots and heading for the privy, Boots won, and she scampered across the compound in the magical light of morning to deal with the much more mundane issue of bladder. On her way back to the hut, the still morning air was cut once more by a rooster's call from somewhere near the barn. As the raucous sound echoed down the hollow, Tanith heard the low call of an owl seeming to answer from the copse of spruces behind the village. The sound was almost identical to the hoo-hoo-hoo from her dream. It sent a cold spike down her spine at the eeriness of the haunting sound that reverberated in her mind even as it faded in the pale dawn's growing light. All right, all mother, I got the message. She muttered it under her breath even as she grinned at herself for doing it. She returned to the cottage and stoked up the fire to boil some water for tea and to warm her oatmeal a bit faster. She stood basking in the heat and listening to the sounds of the village coming awake behind her. For the most part, it was quiet, but the occasional clank of pot-hook reached through the stout walls, and she could practically feel the quickening of the world around her as the light of morning grew in intensity through the narrow outlines of her door. As she was finishing her breakfast, she heard the steady plodding of the ox and the crunch of solid wheels on the gravel of the road. She tossed back the last of her tea and scooped the last few grains of oat from the dish before rising and slipping out into the morning once more. The sun was not yet above the tree line, but the morning was reaching a fullness where the warming rays would arrive momentarily. William led the oxen cart down the path, heading out for the day, and waved to her as she crossed to intercept him. I accept, Tanith said the two words quickly, without any preamble of greeting. William smiled. I'm glad, Mum. Amber will be pleased as well. He didn't stop walking, and Tanith fell into step beside him. Do you think something has really happened to Frank and the team? She asked the question softly, just between us. She looked at him sideways. He blew out a sigh. I can't help worry, but it has. He's never been this late, but so many simple things could have delayed him by ten days. Innocent things, problems with a wheel, a horse with colic, even a delay with a factor purchasing the clay. He shook his head. I hate to borrow trouble, Mum, but we're getting to the point where it's more likely that something unfortunate has happened. He returned her sideways glance with a shrug. "'Short of sending somebody to find him, all we can do is wait it out.' "'She smiled and nodded to him. "'Thank you, William. I appreciate your insight.' "'She raised a hand in farewell and turned her steps back to the hut. "'She idly pondered the implication of the overdue wagon, "'but focused on the immediate issues facing the morning. "'She'd used the last of her willow bark tea for Sadie "'and needed to go through her pack to inventory what, precisely, "'she did have in there. "'She'd planned to get heavier winter clothing in Overton in a few days' time, "'but that schedule was already delayed.' She could be in Overton in ten days, and the next village in three, but it would be nearly a month-round trip to the larger city on foot, and the better part of a week to the village, assuming she could get what she needed there to begin with. She sighed and unceremoniously emptied her pack onto the smooth surface of her bedroll and began sorting supplies from clothing from tools. By the time the sun had fully cleared the treetops, she sorted out the meager pile and made a mental list of things she'd need. Her boots would need reoiling to keep them waterproof and supple, but... The leather was still solid and the stitching sound enough for the coming season. She needed some warmer outerwear and a couple of sets of longer pants to go under her normal walking-around pairs. The pants themselves were baggy and styled after the many-pocketed pants worn by tinkers to hold tools and bric-a-brac. A few evenings with some suitable fabric, and she could line them against the wind and weather. Her lifestyle had kept her lean and almost bony, with hard muscles and narrow bands on her legs and belly, so adding another layer of fabric inside the pants was no great difficulty. Age had still spread her hips, she grinned ruefully at that, and gravity had worked its inevitable course on her torso, but the bandeau she normally wrapped around her chest kept her cargo from shifting and helped disguise her while she was on the road by compressing her breasts against her ribcage. Considering the unpleasant chafing of the dangling alternatives, she found the binding to be much more comfortable. She checked her belt knife and pocketed a few small items, a roll of bandage, a bit of aloe stock, and a steel and flint. They were small, lightweight, but could make a difference if need arose. She took one last survey of her food stocks, sucked air through her teeth, grabbed up her staff and planted her hat on her head. The day was wasting and she needed to find some willow bark and fresh burdock. Perhaps locate some stands of cattail and wild rose as well. The dew was burning off the grass as she made her way across the compound toward Amber's hut. She met young Riley on the way and he fell into step with her. Ma sent me to see if you were all right, Mom. He grinned up at her. Are you? I'm quite all right, Riley. Thank you for asking. Do you know how Sadie is this morning? Is she ready to go gathering? He wriggled in what might have been a shrug, might have been a shake, and might have been just as excitement at the thought of gathering. She seemed okay to me, Mom, but you can ask her your own self. She's with Ma. Tanith couldn't help but be amused by him, and they strode in silence across the still damp grass. At the hut, Riley opened the door and ushered her into the snug confines of Amber's hearth. She found a much-improved Sadie and a rather flushed-looking Amber tidying up the hearth, while Riley's sister sat under the table, apparently playing house with a bedraggled corn husk doll. The two women looked up as Tanith entered and both smiled a warm greeting. Amber spoke first. Good morning, Mum. Good morning, Amber. Hello, Sadie. Are you feeling better today? Right as rain, Mum. Thank you. Amber says you're going to take us gathering this morning. If you're up to it, Gathering willow bark isn't very difficult, nor does it require much skill, more than being able to pick out the willows from the poplars and oaks. She smiled, aware as soon as she said it that the two city-bred women may well not be able to tell an oak from a poplar, an ash from a hickory. She sighed inwardly and hoped she was wrong. All we need is something to cut the willow with. Sadie held up a small saw. Will this do? Perfectly. We can save time by grabbing a whole limb rather than cutting the bits off out there and bringing them home. Tanith was pleased by the young woman's initiative. Amber finished her immediate tasks and looked around brightly. I think we're ready, Mum. Where are we going? Tanith chewed her lip a moment and thought. Willows like wet feet. Is there a place where there's ground that's always damp? Sadie nodded. Yes, Mom, just up the path to the quarry. There's a patch that's always muddy. They had to put logs in to keep the path from turning into a muck hole. That sounds like a good place to start. Tanith looked about at the smiling faces. Shall we go? Amber dropped off her younger daughter to play with Megan's three while they were gathering, and the four of them headed up the path toward the clay quarry. The rough road was easier going than forcing a path into the forest proper, and Tanith kept her eyes moving, looking for side paths and game trails. Deer would use this path if they could, she knew. Smaller game as well, and it might be useful to have a brace of rabbits for her own stew pot. As they walked through the woods, Tanith explained what they were looking for. Any kind of willow will do. Black willow, white, even weeping willows and catkins. Catkins? Riley's squeaky voice sounded amazed. Catkins or willows? Tanith nodded and smiled down at the boy's upturned face. Indeed they are. A kind of willow. And the bark is as good as any other. Privately, she thought it might be a bit better because the small withies of catkin yielded a good amount of the pale in her bark and left a strong, straight, and pliable stick that was useful in a variety of ways. They walked perhaps a quarter mile along the track before it started dipping down into a swale. A bit of corduroy work on the track kept their feet from getting mucky and a stand of white willows grew on a hummock just south of the road. Their leaves were still coated in the pale hairs that gave the willow its name and there were several strong trunks growing in the clump. Tanith pointed out a likely limb with the foot of her staff. That one that grows into the grove? Prune it off close to the trunk and we'll take it. It'll make the stand healthier. Sadie picked her way across the mucky ground but Riley just bolted through the muck obviously delighting in the squelchy feeling beneath his feet. Tanneth could feel Amber cringe at the damage he might be doing to his footwear, but she soon relaxed as his enthusiastic enjoyment infected them all. Before she applied her saw to the tree, Sadie turned to Tanith. Do you want to say a prayer first, Mum? Invoke the spirits of the forest or something? Tanith smiled. We're doing the work of the All-Mother here, Sadie. I'm pretty sure she knows we're taking what we need and using what we take. Pruning that limb out of the inside of the stand will leave them better than what we found. Sadie looked up at the trees around her. Still, Mom, if you wouldn't mind. Sadie stood waiting, and even Amber looked on expectantly. Tannis shrugged and turned to the north, raising her arms dramatically. She felt a little foolish, but if Sadie wanted a prayer, she intended it to be a good one. Guardian of the north, know we work to make the earth we share more fruitful. She pivoted smoothly to her right to face the east. Guardian of the east, the air will move more freely between the trunks as we remove this branch that blocks your passage. She pivoted to the south not feeling so foolish anymore. A growing warmth expanded in her belly. Guardian of the South, by taking this branch we honor the spirit of the willow to harvest the healing medicines provided by the All-Mother in this growing thing. She turned to the West and finished the circuit. Guardian of the West, may the healing power of water flow more easily through these trees as we remove this branch for our use. Tanith faced the North, lowered her arms, and planted the foot of her staff on the ground. So mote it be. As if in answer, a raven called loudly from the top of a spruce on the ridge above, startling them all a little. She could see the black bird outlined against the sky as it perched somewhat precariously in the fir tree. When she turned back to the waiting people, they were staring at her. And she had a hard time deciding who looked the most astonished. They all regarded her with round, staring eyes and a slightly slack-jawed wonder. It was Riley who recovered first. Whoosh, mum, when you does a prayer, you don't mess about, do you? His innocent exclamation broke the spell, and the women laughed at his piping pronouncement. Tanis' laughter joined the rest, and all of them sounding just a bit brittle. Tanis' body still vibrated from her effort, and she felt a bit flushed and more winded than simply saying a few words might account for. A warmth in her belly suffused her, and a sense of well-being accompanied it. On the hummock a few feet away, Sandy placed the blade of the saw against the edge of the tree and with a few swift strokes took the limb. It was only an inch or so at the base, but long and spindly from working between the trunks of the other trees. With Riley's help, she extricated the awkward shape out of the copse, and together they dragged it back to the road. The base of the branch was woody and dense, but the length of the branch showed a good progression, with many branches and tips of first-year growth that promised a fat layer of inner bark. Tanith nodded and smiled. Yes, this will do nicely. How many more do we need, Mum? Sadie was about to head back to the hummock. Just the one. It'll serve our purpose for teaching you how to do it and probably give enough bark for the village for the whole winter. Tanith eyed it once more, measuring and gauging with her eye. Yes, I think this will be more than enough. She looked back at the small grove and then cast a glance at the spruce where the raven still perched. One more thing to do here and we can head back. Riley, can you get a handful of that sticky mud? She used her staff to point to a place in the ground where their feet had exposed a rather black-looking slurry of muck. Riley looked at her as if she were mad and then looked at his mother for permission. Amber nodded and shrugged. With a very boyish grin and great enthusiasm, he scooped up a palmful, digging his fingers into the soft, cold soil and holding up the clod of muck as if it were a golden prize. Tanith nodded approvingly. Very good. Now plaster that on the cut on the tree if you would. Make a nice covering for where we cut her. He had trouble figuring out how to apply the mud at first, but eventually went with a slap it on and pat it down approach. He had to stretch up to reach the cut, and mucky water rolled down his arm. He laughed as the chilly, messy liquid tickled his skin. Eventually, he had it covered to his satisfaction and stepped back to admire his handiwork. Will that help, Mum? Amber spoke softly. Tennis shrugged. Some. It's better than nothing. It'll keep the tree from losing too much sap until the winter stops the roots, and it should protect the exposed wood from vermin that might like to feed on it. I don't expect it will last past the first good storm, but in a few days the tree itself will begin healing over. In the meantime, she has a little protection. Sadie and Amber exchanged a glance as if to say, we must remember this. Amber lifted the lightweight branch and handed it to Riley. He balanced it and was careful to carry it so that it didn't drag on the ground as his solid little legs began the short walk back to the village. Amber smiled a mother's smile and the two younger women fell in behind the boy, leaving Tanith to walk behind. Chapter Seven, Second Thoughts After helping them scrape the bark from the willow limb, Tanith showed them how to spread it on a clean cloth in a sheltered area to dry. She charged Riley with making sure the long scraps of bark were stirred and turned periodically. With the first task completed, Tanith left them to return to her hut. Morning had not been without its share of surprises. The odd feelings that coursed through her body during the prayer had taken her by surprise. Doing some figuring in her head, she wondered if the monthlies were about to begin again. She was a bit overdue, but the regular ticking of her body's clock had begun to be more erratic as she aged. Soon the familiar pattern would disappear completely, and she'd be shut of them for the rest of her life. Not soon enough. She muttered to herself, even as she wondered what being in close company of other women would do to her cycle. She sighed and continued on to her cottage for a cup of tea. She could have had a cup with Amber and Sadie, but decided she wanted to be alone for a time to think about what had happened in the woods. That something had happened was beyond her doubt but what that something might have been was still open to interpretation, and she hoped to examine it in private to see if she could make sense of the feelings she had. Second thoughts about her decision were swirling up. Twenty years of being on the road had trained her to solitude, and the constant hubbub of having people around was beginning to tell on her already. They were very nice people, and the children were a delight that she'd almost forgotten, but they needed to be taken in small doses. She felt prickly and just needed to find some quiet for a time. She worked hard to convince herself that it would be all right and that being around people, even as few people as there were in the village, would become commonplace, even enjoyable. In a pig's eye, she muttered to herself again. It was her long-standing habit, this talking to herself, and not one she approved of. She stomped around the corner of her hut, headed for the door, when she saw the six-horse team and lorry wagon making the turn into the hamlet from the pike. An older man, wearing a wide-brimmed hat and homespun shirt under a leather vest, coaxed the team along, and Tanith shaded her eyes with her hand to get a better look as the man drove the team up the path, and the village erupted around her. A small pack of children appeared almost instantly, and the womenfolk in the hamlet all appeared to come out at once. Tanith saw Amber and Sadie come running down the lane toward the team, but slowed their approach before they spooked the horses. Sadie was smiling, but Amber looked concerned, even as the man who must be Frank raised a hand in salute, the gathering throng. Sadie stopped beside the track, but Amber continued on to walk beside the lorry and speak with Frank. Tenneth couldn't make out the words, but she saw Frank shake his head several times and point to the back of the wagon. Amber nodded in response and finally smiled. Frank never stopped the team, but let it plod its way along the track to the barn. Eventually it went between two huts, and the children and women fell in alongside, or behind, and followed along with the wagon until Tana stood alone once more. She wondered if everything were really all right, but Frank hadn't seemed injured, and the horses appeared tired but otherwise unharmed, as much as she could tell. She turned to her hut and was startled by the large raven sitting on the ridgepole of the house, apparently staring down at her. It mantled its wings and cawed hoarsely at her once, before turning and launching itself back toward the wood. "'Taneth felt a thin shiver, but waved a hand in the air as if to dispel smoke or a bothersome fly. "'And don't be foolish, old woman. It's a raven.' "'She was irked with herself for being startled and entered the hut. "'She crossed to the hearth and prodded it roughly to life, "'fanning the coals with her hat and tossing a few handfuls of dried catnip into the embers, "'followed by a few sticks of dry wood. "'In moments the fire was crackling cheerfully. "'She filled her small kettle from the bucket and set it to warm by the fire.' "'tried not to think about the raven. "'She did step out of the hut once "'just to get a bit of air "'and felt silly, being relieved "'that the large bird hadn't returned to the roof. "'She took a deep breath and let it out slowly. "'She shook her head at her own unease, "'and the doubts about staying in the village "'that she'd had earlier returned. "'Maybe you are going crazy, you old fool. "'There was nobody around to hear her, "'so she minced no words "'as she went back into the hut "'and made sure the door was firmly closed behind her. "'She wanted her tea.' Perhaps she'd finish the bit of hard cheese for lunch. She vowed to take her snares into the forest and see if the all-mother would grant her a rabbit or two for the morrow. She felt crabby and hated the feeling, but the sense of longing to be back on the road was almost palpable. In the end, she brewed a pot of chamomile instead of her favored black tea and let the soothing aroma and gentle tea comfort her while she sat cross-legged on her bedroll and nursed herself through a bad case of the crabbies. It was almost under control when she heard somebody approach the door and knock tentatively. She thought about trying to pretend she wasn't there, but realized that they'd probably just open the door and see her sitting on the bed anyway. "'Who is it?' She worked hard to keep her voice neutral and calm. Sadie, mum, I've brought you some fresh bread and cheese.' Her regret for her uncharitable feelings washed over her as she realized that she was the one being unreasonable. "'Come in, Sadie. It's open.' Sadie slipped the latch and walked down the three steps, carrying a rough basket of split twigs even as Tana stood up from the cot. Oh, I'm sorry, Mum. Were you resting? Sadie looked quite contrite. Tanith found a genuine smile somewhere and shook her head, holding up the cup of tea. Just having a little tea and a think, my dear. Sadie looked relieved and crossed to the table, placing her basket upon it. I set an extra loaf to bake for you this morning before we left, and there's a nice bit of cheese in there for you, too, Mum." She smiled gently at Tanith. Thank you for your help this morning. It really is something we should have done for ourselves. If we'd thought about it at all, we certainly could have. I'm glad I can help, Sadie. Tanith was surprised to discover that she meant it. And thank you for the bread and cheese. That was very thoughtful of you. Sadie gave a little half curtsy, half-bow. Oh, it's the least we can do for you, mum." She glanced around the still almost empty hut. I'll just leave you to your thinking now, Mom. I need to get back to my own work. She scurried out the door and gave a little wave before closing it behind her, rattling it once to make sure it was firmly latched. Tana stood there and shook her head in wonderment. She wasn't sure how she felt about the reverence they seemed to hold her in. On the other hand, she had to admit it wasn't much different from the feelings she'd had about all the women she'd studied with over the years, and she was on her way to see the one above all, the one that all the others mentioned in reverential whispers, just at the moment, she felt a bit like an impostor, being on the wrong side of reverence, as it were. The smell of the fresh bread drew her to the table, and she discovered a lovely loaf of yeast bread and a small round of soft cheese in a damp cloth. Her mouth was instantly awash, and she used her belt knife to slice off two fat slabs of bread, added a bit of the cheese, and then toasted them over the coals using a bit of dried rosemary stock from the cast-off pile until the cheese began to melt into the bread. She almost burned her mouth on it, but it tasted divine. With her belly full and the chamomile working its soothing magic on her jangled nerves, she felt a bit less antisocial than she had before lunch. For the first time since arriving, she felt no urgent need to do something other than clean the cheese from her belt knife and rewrap the food. She left it on the table and contemplated refilling her teacup but decided that one more cup of chamomile would put her to sleep. Instead, she found her snares and put her earlier plan into motion. Clapping her hat on her head and taking up her staff, she slipped out the back door of the hut and crossed the weedy open area to the woods beyond. It felt good to be back in the forest. She noted several useful plants along the way, including a drift of chamomile flowers that would more than replenish her meager stock, and at least two different mints. She slid easily into the forest, passing from the open clearing through the verge of understory and into the open forest beyond. Her practiced eye picked out several likely stands of trees, including several witch hazels and some chestnuts and walnuts. She gathered a pocketful of the chestnuts to roast later and began making mental notes about what she'd need for gathering. She found several stands of blackberry and raspberry, and as she pressed further along, found a place where one of the larger trees had toppled, smashing open the canopy in its fall and opening the way for several large rugosas. They looked to be mature plants at least several winters old and loaded with blossoms that were already fading to the fruiting hips. They'd be valuable as winter wound into spring. She'd have to bring Riley out to gather them up before the birds and animals got them. It would be a few more days, perhaps after the first frost of the season, before they'd be ready to harvest. She wandered in a broad arc that took her back to the clay quarry road. One of the first skills Agnes Dogwood had taught her was how to keep track of where she was in the forest and she'd honed that skill for twenty years with each new teacher adding layers of nuance and knowledge to her memory. Even with the brief survey, she knew she could find the individual plants and trees that she'd mentally marked in her partial circuit of the hamlet. If the rest of the forest were as rich as the small slice she'd just covered in her short tramp, there was no need to worry about food for the coming winter. Tanith was relatively sure that she herself could feed at least half of the village on what she'd be able to glean from the All-Mother's bounty around them. Remembering the prayer of the morning and the unexpected response, she planted her staff on the moist forest floor and whispered a quiet prayer of thanks to the All-Mother out of heartfelt gratitude for the gifts that she'd found. She stood there in the peaceful afterglow, listening to the wind sighing through the branches over her head and smelling the rich, loamy soil where her staff had dug into it. A waft of pine came down slope on the breeze and somewhere back in the forest a squirrel chittered. She took one last deep breath and let it out slowly before starting the short walk down the track to the village. As she stepped out into the open again, she remembered the rabbit snares in her pocket, but decided against placing them after all. With a spring in her step, she continued on through the village to her hut. As she approached, she met Thomas coming up the road from the direction of the pike. He smiled shyly on seeing her and bobbed his head in a kind of self-conscious bow. Good afternoon, Mum." Hello, Thomas. It's a lovely day, isn't it? Oh, yes, Mum. quite be fall for sure soon enough, but right nice now. How's the hunting here? Oh, it's very good, Mum. Lots of small game and several herds of deer that roam the hillsides on either side of the pike. He seemed almost embarrassed to be discussing hunting with her. I saw a rabbit sign in the woods right here this afternoon. She nodded to the woods behind her hut in an attempt to draw the taciturn man out a bit on the subject of local game. Oh, there's hare aplenty all over these hills, and the odd wildcat and coyote to keep him from taking over, too do you fancy a bit of rabbit, Mum? She smiled. I was going to set a snare or two this afternoon, but got sidetracked by the plant life. He nodded. The woods around haven't been picked over here yet. Only Mother altered and gathered much, and even that was not but what she used for her liniments, salves, and teas. As he spoke, he rummaged around in the game bag over his shoulder and pulled out a field-dressed hair. He held it out to her. If you were going to snare one, then you probably know what to do with this, Mum. It's yours if you want it. Kenneth was reticent about taking the food out of others' mouths, but he pressed it on her. Please, mum, i have another pair for the family and some more fat grouse for the general larder. It's my pleasure. She accepted the rabbit with a nod of thanks. I'm much obliged, Thomas. Thank you. He beamed and knuckled his brow. It's my job, mum. It's why I'm here. I can bring you anything the woods will provide. You just let me know what and when you want it. The hair was heavy in her hands, and she nodded her thanks once more. A fat rabbit like this once a week would be quite adequate to my needs, Thomas. Thank you. She paused for a moment before continuing. You don't know where I can find some oats for oatmeal, do you? He grinned. There's grains up at the barn, mum. Draw what you need. There's usually plenty there, oats, flour, millet, rice, dry beans. He smiled encouragingly. You're one of us now, I figure. You can help yourself to anything you find there, mum, and if you can't find something, you let me know. His simple words warmed her in ways she hadn't anticipated, and the gift of the hare was unexpected. He knuckled his brow once more and nodded his farewell before continuing up into the village, leaving her standing there in the glow of the late afternoon sun. Thanks for listening to Ravenwood, a Tannis Fairport adventure. Music is The Hill, composed and produced by Ivan Chu. Find this and other works by Ivan Chu at www.archive.org. You can learn more about the composer and his works by visiting his blog at myrightbrain.wordpress.com. This has been a presentation from Durandus, offered under a Creative Commons Attribution No Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 U.S. License. For more information on Tanith Fairport and stories from the Lamas Wood, visit www.lamaswood.com.